It's good to be together. Um, it's good to be back in town. Uh, it was really cool to see Ben up here this morning. It uh, warms your heart. Uh, I was actually being, I was, I was pretty nostalgic this morning as I was out praying um, about this sermon this morning, about the lesson. And I was remembering my early days, my, my first attempts at uh, public speaking from the pulpit. And I remember trying to get mentally... Um, you know, with it, trying to prepare and, 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 and praying and, and asking God that, you know, please don't make me, uh, please don't let me make a fool of myself. That was my prayer. And then as I got more and more comfortable, comfortable from the pulpit, I would pray that God just, just make sure that I can be, uh, have a huge impact on those uh, around me. I want to change the world for the pulpit. A little naive. Um, Paul and I have talked a lot about that, that uh, it's good to have a good lesson up here. It can be inspiring, but it's really rarely life-changing because life change doesn't come from a lesson from the pulpit unless God's working. And as I've gotten older, I I know that uh, what I can say this morning can just fly right past people. And so I prayed this morning that God just, just let everybody take one thing from my sermon this morning. I'm going to give you two points and hopefully at least... Take one home with you. I, uh, we're doing a series on the, the Hall of Fame of Faith, or the Hall of Faith, uh, Hebrews 11. And, and Mike had sent out uh, a request uh, to several guys to, to pick a, um, a character from Hebrews 11, a person from Hebrews 11, to, to preach about, to teach about. And uh, I decided to take uh, Jacob. And I obviously didn't remember Jacob very well from my character study of Jacob from a while back because as I started getting back into it, I was getting a little discouraged. And I wasn't seeing much that I could really preach on to really lift up Jacob. Obviously, he's in the Hall of Faith, so he must have done something right, right? But as I kept reading and reading, there's a lot of of scripture um, in Genesis about Jacob, and I kept reading, I kept getting more and more discouraged. And I was thinking, man, I should have been like Robin took Gideon. That would have been a whole lot easier. <laughs> now, Jacob, the name Jacob, do you guys know what that means? No. Now, it became it was very appropriate from his birth. Heel, heel grabber or one who deceives. Now, I'm guessing that if I was growing up as Jacob, I wonder why I got that nickname. Or I got that name. And what it really meant. And really, his name was true to form for most of his life, from my perspective. Um, I've got a family tree here. Where's your... Okay. This is the family tree from Terah through uh, Isaac and Jacob. I should have got the clicker from him, so I could use the, uh, the highlighter. But uh, now, I'm no expert on genealogy, but I'm pretty sure that family trees are supposed to branch out. Yeah. And we have some problems with branching here because the line of Abraham tended to marry back into the same line. I'm also pretty sure that a family tree shouldn't have dotted lines. (laughs) And if you'll notice with Jacob here, he's got a lot of dotted lines. So I want to give you the cliff notes on Jacob's life so we can move on to Genesis 32 and get to the good stuff. I have 
two thoughts for you this morning. Um, I want you guys to consider, do you look at yourself through God's eyes? And do you look at others through Jesus' eyes? Obviously, we're going to spend a little time on Jacob, but since we are a church of Christ, I want to spend a little time on Jesus as well. Amen. And uh, the Cliff Notes version on Jacob, his name means he deceives. He obviously lived up to his name based on the decisions he made in his life. He had a brother, Esau, who was the firstborn. Hence, he was grabbing his heels as he was coming out of the womb. They were twins. And he traded a bowl of stew to Esau to get his birthright. His mother dreamed up an elaborate scheme so that Jacob could steal Esau's birthright from their father, including putting goat skins on his arms so he'd seem hairy like his brother because uh, uh, his father was getting old and Isaac couldn't see anymore. And so that was his way of proving that he was uh, Esau by the hairy arm. After he steals the birthright, he gets cast out, he's in exile, and he meets his cousin Rachel. He wants to marry Rachel, and so he makes a deal with Rachel's father, his uncle, to work for seven years, and then uh, he was supposed to to be able to to marry Rachel. His new father-in-law actually deceives him and gives him Leah, his other cousin, and so he marries Leah. So he has to work another seven years to, to marry Rachel, whom, whom he really loves. Now, I checked it out, and it wasn't actually prohibited to marry your cousin. But I'm thinking it's not really a very good idea to marry your, both your cousins. <laughs> and the dysfunction continues. Yeah. <clears throat> so, Leah is loved by Jacob, but she's barren. Rachel, on the other hand, is having kids one after another. She's already got four kids and be, by, before Leah decides that she's going to give her handmaiden as a wife to Jacob. And not to be outdone, so does her sister. So that's where we get into the, the, the whole confusion there with the dotted lines where he's got four wives and a bunch of offspring from that. <clears throat> so the the... Dysfunction continues. He wants to get away from his father-in-law. He, he strikes a deal with his, his father-in-law that uh, he's going to uh, give him some of his livestock and, and raise livestock for him uh, with the hope of getting away from him. As he departs and leaves his father-in-law, his wife Rachel steals the family idol from Laban, her father. Then lies about it. Yeah. Deceives her. And then Jacob makes this rash vow that he didn't know that the battle had been stolen by his wife. He makes the rash vow that whoever stole it needs to be killed. The dysfunction continues. So, it's just one bad decision after another. And I'm thinking, does this guy really belong in the Hall of Fame of Faith? It's, it kind of made me feel good about my own own life. It certainly made me feel a whole lot better about my dysfunctional family. We actually look normal compared to these guys. <laughs> Jacob had some strengths. He was clever. He was hardworking. And he was pretty successful. He was driven. And often, Jacob made his own rules. He got what he wanted, even if he had to steal it. He got what he wanted. He achieved what he wanted to do. 
even if he had to use deception. Fast forward to Genesis 32 as as, uh, Jacob is older. He's got uh, kids, many kids. He's got 13 kids. And he's living in exile and he's living in fear. His brother Esau has vowed to kill him as soon as their father dies. His father, Jacob's father, is not very happy with him. He's not really enjoying life. Then he gets word that his brother's hunting for him. Not only is he hunting for him, he's bringing 400 men to do whatever he needs to do to Jacob. So Jacob is distraught. And it's not the first time he's gone to God, but I think, in my view, this is the first time he's gone to God in sincerity. He's in a different place. He's in a difficult place. In Genesis 32, in verse 1, it says, Jacob also went on his way, and the angels, angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahananim, Mahanaim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of them to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, This is what you're to say to my lord Esau. Esau, sorry. Your servant Jacob says, I've been staying with Laban, and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I might find favor in your eyes. He's got a different perspective now. He's, he's humbled out. He calls his brother who, who uh, was firstborn Lord. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. See, Jacob's still trying to figure things out. He still doesn't trust God. He's got his backup plan. And this is the God who vowed that he would make his descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore. <clears throat> Then Jacob prayed, O my, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, sorry, Lord, you, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown to your servant. I have a staff. I only had a staff when I crossed this, this Jordan, but now I have, have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from my hand, from the hand of my brother Esau. For I'm afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers and the children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and will make your descendants like the sand of the seashore, which cannot be counted. He spent the night there, and from from, uh, what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, Go ahead of me and keep space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, When my brother Esau meets and asks you, Who do you belong to? And where are you going? And who owns all the animals in front of you? Then you were to say, They belong to, to your servant Jacob. They are gifts sent to my lord Esau, and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second, the third, and all the others who follow the herds you're this, to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For I thought, I will pacify him with the gifts I'm sending ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him. But he himself spent the night in the camp. 
So Jacob's got another plan. He's going to figure this one out. He's beginning to, to humble up to, to, to God. He's, he's beginning to actually acknowledge that everything that he has came from God. And that God truly had great plans for him. And then in verse 22, that night Jacob got up and took his, his two wives, two, his two female servants and his eleven sons and crossed the ford, the ford of, uh, of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched, and he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. I'm sure that was welcome news to Jacob. Because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to, the, to this day, the Israelites did not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. I always I love it when they throw in those little tidbits there right. in, in the old historical books. Ah, and by the way, uh, Israelites don't eat the tendon because of you know, old Jacob's whole thing. Um, <laughs> but um, it's kind of wild just to see Jacob. He was an incredibly self-sufficient, independent, driven man. He really didn't need God. Yeah. So he thought. And as his life starts falling apart, as he's in the distress, he, he begins to realize, maybe I do need God. Maybe I can't do this on my own. He was still uh, somewhat successful based on the amount of uh, livestock that he had and the his possessions in his two camps. Mm-hmm. But he begins to realize where he's at. And I think it's at this point where, where Jacob is wrestling with God that he begins to understand where he stands because he's beginning to look at himself from God's eyes. Prior to this point, he understood himself based on what he accomplished, what he could do, how he could manipulate people. But all of a sudden, he's looking at himself the way God sees him. And I wonder if maybe that's what we should do more often. I think we can get caught up in in a mindset where we're pretty self-sufficient. We're able to accomplish things on our own. As As we grow older, we get married, we have kids, we buy a house... We gain possessions, and we take, we can take a lot of uh, um, encouragement in everything that we are able to do for ourselves, mm-hmm. and it's dangerous. And I think there are times where we got we have to just sit back and understand that everything we have has been given to us by God. Right. Yeah, we may have worked hard, we may have sacrificed, but without God, we wouldn't be where we're at. There's that danger. We don't give God the credit because we don't look at ourselves from His point of view. We rest on our abilities and our accomplishments and we take credit for what we have. And the reality is, until Jacob looked at himself from God's perspective, 
He didn't want to be with. He didn't want to be bothered with God's plan. He knew God had a plan for him. It had been stated for, for three generations. It was the same plan that he had for Abraham and Isaac, and it was being passed down. But he didn't want to be bothered with God's plan because he had his own plan. And it wasn't until he was broken that he could actually see himself from God's perspective. Right. And if you think, if you look down at your life from God's perspective, you realize how much passion God has for us. God didn't care about Jacob running away. God didn't care about uh, being uh, how successful Jacob was. All he cared about was being right and having a relationship with Jacob. He wanted him back. Right. And if you read on, you'll, you'll see that Esau had the same mentality. Because I think Esau looked at Jacob from God's perspective. He just wanted to have his relationship back with his brother. He wanted to let everything that happened in the past be in the past and move on. And you notice in Jacob's reaction as he's praying to God, he begins to beat himself up. Calls himself worthless. And he begins to, to really just beat the tar of himself. And I think we can fall in that trap as well if we're not looking at ourselves from God's perspective. And you think about it, as a parent, it'd get really old if your child was always approaching you apologizing. Hmm. I have a co-worker in, in St. Louis who uh, he has that bad habit of apologizing for everything, even things that he didn't do wrong. And it just drives you crazy. You, don't do that anymore. Don't apologize. You, you didn't do anything wrong. And I think that's kind of God's perspective sometimes when, when we get in that mode of beating ourselves up. Always pointing out our faults. Always dwelling on our own sin. It's good that we confess our sin. It's good that we acknowledge our sin. But I, don't think, I think God gets tired of hearing it. He wants us to move on because from His perspective, from His point of view, it's done. Yeah. He just wants to, to hold us as a child. <clears throat> in Hebrews 11.21, in the Hall of Fame of Faith, it's said about Jacob that it was by faith that Jacob, when he was old and dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and bowed in worship as he leaned on his staff. And I was, I was reading this from a different perspective after I'd pretty much prepared the whole sermon. And it dawned on me, the, the play on words there, it said that he blessed each of Joseph's son and bowed in worship as he leaned on his staff. In Jacob's wrestling match with God, he was injured. He walked with a limp for the rest of his life. And I can't help but think there's a play on, on the word that he's leaning on his staff, meaning God. And it wasn't until Jacob wrestled with God that he began to realize that he was dependent on God. And it's pointed out in that scripture in the Hall of Fame of Faith that he leaned on his staff and he was finally dependent on God Dependent on God's plan. It's a hard lesson he had to learn. He even got a limp from that lesson. <clears throat> and I think, you know, I think what was bothering me so much about just, just looking at Jacob's life was back in his time they had it so easy. <laughs> there were very few rules. I mean, the whole Levitical 
um, uh, covenant hadn't even taken place because that came through Levi, one of his sons. So really, all God required from them is their faith right. and trust in Him. And I was reading in, in uh, 1 Timothy 6, and I was kind of identifying with Timothy. You know, Paul's writing these letters to Timothy, and I get the feeling that Timothy got tired of letters from Paul. Because they're all, always filled with instruction, correction, long list of things to do, things to live up to. And I can just picture Timothy saying, enough. I just want to go back to the good old days where faith is the one that matters. Okay. I began to, to think about um, just the whole relationship of man and God and and the whole parental relationship. And I was reading in 1 John 5 and verse 5, it says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is, Christ, Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father, his child as well. Sorry, everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his, carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. Amen. And I get frustrated with that scripture because when I think about all the things that I need to do to fulfill my calling as a Christian, it feels burdensome. But the only reason it feels burdensome is because I'm self-reliant. And I'm looking at everything from my own perspective instead of through the eyes of God. Many of you know our, our daughter Claire, and uh, she's taught us a ton about life. And... Uh, I didn't sleep much last night, so it's a, it's a recipe for a train wreck here. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but it's funny because when Claire feels loved, when she feels believed in, when she feels piped with Carol and I, she's a totally different kid. She's respectful. She's proactive. She wants to know how she can help. She's a great kid. But when, when she feels insecure in our relationship, she's rebellious. She, you can't tell her anything. You can't ask her to do anything. And it's just amazing how that's a reflection of our relationship with God. If we don't feel loved by God, if we don't feel connected with God, and if we don't have the time to, to wrestle with God, God's commands are burdensome. God's commands are frustrating. And I think that's why it's so important that we have our, our, our time with God to, to meditate on His Word, to, to, to pray to Him, and to, to really to, to share our thoughts with Him, but also really understand how God views us. Because God views us like we view Claire. We'd do anything for Claire. As we would for him as well. And that's all that God really wants us to feel. Sure, God's disappointed in us when we don't follow commands. 
but too often we beat ourselves up too much because yeah. we're not looking at, at ourselves from God's perspective. Right. Jacob finally learned to give, up, give control to God. And really, Jacob's story is, is, illustrates how an imperfect person can be blessed by God. Yeah. Based on that relationship that God wants that with us. And I believe that, that Jacob is in the Hall of Fame of, of faith really as a testament to God's faithfulness to him. Jacob blew it just like we blow it. Jacob's family was filled with dysfunction just like our families. But God is always faithful. God can't be unfaithful to us. Amen. So I want to encourage you guys this morning to, to think about yourself from God's perspective. Meditate on that concept. But also I want to encourage you to... to Look at others through the eyes of Jesus. We uh, recently went out to, to Portland to visit Emma. It's a great time. She sends her love to the church. Uh, she's in a great spot there. She uh, she's in a great spot academically. Um, she's got a lot of great new friends. Um, she's really well connected with the church. Um, they're taking great care of her. Um, and to be honest, I was kind of faithless about that. I was concerned about her going out there and really really. Uh, Investing in the church, investing in relationships there, and I was I was calling the campus minister, kind of giving him a heads up, and just try, trying to pave the road. Now I had my own plan and wasn't relying on God's plan, and uh, God's truly taken care of, uh, of her. And one of her first uh, Wednesday night uh, meetings that she went to the church, uh, she was paired up with a prayer partner who uh, recently moved uh, from Switzerland, and her English isn't great, so Emma offered to pray with her in, in French. And so like instant bonding. Um, she's got another friend there that uh, has had some health issues like Emma has, and uh, they can totally relate. God is, is taking care of her and is really provided for her. But uh, it, it was pretty enlightening. I don't know how many people have been to Portland. Um, Burlington has the reputation of being pretty weird uh, with a lot of weird people. It's nothing compared to Portland. <laughs> Absolutely nothing compared to Portland. Um, we were... In, in one of the student lounges in the, in the dorms uh, the uh, first night we got there and um, it was kind of kind of weird um, Emma's RA came running into the into the lounge and Emma's RA is named Ryan and but likes to be referred to as she um, has long hair broad shoulders and looks like a woman in many different ways and I was just totally taken aback. And, I, and he ran in, she ran in, whatever, and, and ran back out. And I looked at Emma and her, and her roommate and said, what was that? And it really bothered me. And I, you know, I stewed on it for a while. And, and, uh, and uh, as I was thinking about that, I, uh, I was reminded of an old story. And uh, there's a, a man who... Uh, Later years in life, has, has raised he and his wife has, have raised a daughter, and uh, it was her only child, and he always wanted a son. So when she began dating, he really embraced the, the, the dating life because it meant that he, maybe he'd have a son-in-law. And she began to date a, a young man who he really liked, the father really liked. Um, Steve was, a, was the captain of his, his football team in college. He currently coached Little League football. He was an avid hunter avid fisherman, worked as a stockbroker. He was like the perfect son-in-law. And so he established this relationship with Steve. 
they would go fishing every Saturday, and they just had a blast. And one day he gets a call from his daughter, and uh, she says, Steve and I have broken up. Steve has decided he wanted to take a job in another city, and I'm not going with him. And this poor old guy was just heartbroken. <laughs> there goes his, his fishing buddy. There goes the only son that he ever had. Later on, a couple months later, he gets a call from his daughter, and she said, well, Dad, I'm, I'm dating another guy. And you'd really like, love Rick. He's a great guy. And you can see the, the excitement growing in, in, in her father's voice. And, you know, great, you know, is, is, he, uh, um, is he a fisherman? Is he a hunter? So, uh, no, doesn't fish, doesn't hunt. Um, he'd like to learn. He was raised by his grandmother. I had never had a chance to, to learn how to fish or hunt. And he'd love for you to teach him. So, well, does he like sports? Is he athletic? And she said, yeah, he's a dancer. And you just hear the silence on the other end of the line. And, and he said, well, what does he do for a living? I said, well, Dad, Rick's a nurse. And poor Dad's just struggling. That's not his perfect perfect view of a son-in-law. But he does agree to go uh, fishing with him that Saturday. He tells his daughter to, to make sure that Rick meets him at the dock at 6 a.m. He pulls in at 5.45, and Rick's standing there on the dock, and all his fears were confirmed. Rick's standing on the, do- on the dock in his penny loafers, slacks, and his polo shirt. <laughs> and he's thinking, oh, man... He did notice that Rick had enough common sense to bring a rain jacket because they were going to be out in the middle of the lake and it looked like it might rain. So they load up the boat, and as they're motoring out to the center of the lake and getting ready to set the anchor, he realizes that uh, Rick forgot his rain jacket on the shore, on the dock. And so he's kind of dreading the whole thing. And again, his worst fears are confirmed as he's trying to get Rick set up that this guy doesn't even know how to tie a knot, doesn't know how to rig a fishing pole can't bait a hook, doesn't know how to cast. So he spends most of his day teaching him all these things, including how to remove a hook from the back of your head. <laughs> and he's getting more and more frustrated, and he looks down his watch, and he realizes it's after lunch, it's being in the rain, and he hasn't even got his line in the water yet. He's getting super frustrated. As the rain's coming down, Rick's getting wet, and so he finally says, fine, I'll take you back in to get your coat. Rick says, don't worry about it, I got this. He feels like this is the first chance to impress maybe his future father-in-law. Steps out of the boat, stands on the water, walks across the water, grabs his, his rain jacket, puts it on, walks back, steps in the boat. And he's thinking, I got him now. He's got to like me. He's got to be impressed. He looks over at uh, the old man, and the old man looks at him disgust, puts his head down. No words were shared for the rest of the day. And they, they motor back in. They go separate ways, and the old man arrives at, at home, and he's greeted by his, his daughter and his, his wife and in unison. They ask, how did the fishing trip go? And the guy says, well, this is probably the worst fishing trip I've ever had. And his wife says, so far. But, uh, <laughs> and they say, well, what, what happened? So, well, I, the guy doesn't know anything. He can't bait a hook. He can't rig a line. He can't cast. Even when he finally caught a fish, he didn't know what to do with it. And to make matters worse, the kid can't even swim. (laughs) We all have prejudices in life. 
I recently, I can't remember if I was listening to TEDx or if it was uh, um, another um, lesson, or CIO loves to do these lessons during staff meetings, um, but the speaker said, each one of us has prejudice. And I thought, you know, that's a, that's a bold statement. He says, I'm prejudiced. And he got, went on to explain that, you know, we have to be prejudiced. Because if we're walking down the street and someone's coming towards us that we've never met, we have to prejudge them based on what we know that's stored away because we have no knowledge of them. And it's just human nature to go back to the, to the data we have stored in our brain to judge somebody, to interact with them. I'm convinced that's true. Yeah. And a lot of times our, our prejudice, our prejudgment of people we don't know is based on personal experience. Sometimes it's based on what we glean from social media, from the media, from family members, from friends. But all these prejudgments get stored up in our brain. And I tell you, when I saw Emma's RA, the wheels were just turning. And I was actually getting angry at the school. The fact that this guy is in a, uh, in a position of authority. They've placed him in a position of authority. And I don't agree with his lifestyle. It feels to me that this school that we're writing big checks to is promoting something I don't agree with. And I was getting all worked up about it, and I was getting super frustrated about it, and I had made comments to, to one of Emma's friends when we were at breakfast, and it was, it was, she could tell that I was really agitated by the whole thing. And then a couple of nights uh, later, we, we had dinner with the campus minister, and uh, he was you know, asking us how we like Portland, and I said, well, it's, it's very weird. Because he had warned me when we went out to, to visit the school, it's, it's very weird. I said, that's not, that can't be any more weird than Burlington. Um, and so I, I started to kind of regurge everything, that, all my frustration about this situation in the dorms. And recalling a, a story that Emma had shared with me that she was in a group of girls and they were talking about how, how brave Ryan was in his um, declaration of who he was and who he, who he felt he was. And, and then one of the same girls turned around and was belittling, belittling another resident on the floor for wearing, for wearing too much makeup, saying she was fake. And all this stuff just got me all riled up. And I was, I was talking to, to Joey, the, the campus minister, and, and it just started coming out. And I could just see he, he's, he didn't know what to say. And I think he was actually getting pretty frustrated with me because it wasn't one of my best moments. And then I stopped, and I thought, and I said, well, Joey, I guess... I'm having a, such a hard time because I'm not looking at Ryan from Jesus' eyes. Yeah. I'm not looking at him through Jesus' eyes, and I don't see him like Jesus sees him. And it's wrong. When I was in St. Louis this last week, and I was, I was, I was walking to, to work. I'd stay in a hotel that's about two blocks from the office, and as I'm walking down the, the, the sidewalk, ever since the whole uh, Ferguson uh, episodes, I'm a little, uh, I keep my head up. I'm watching things uh, around me. And as I'm walking down the sidewalk, I see another corner of my eye, a young black man running towards me. And immediately I go, I put up my guard. And I think my reaction startled him. And I thought, wow, that's weird. I have never had a negative interaction with a young black man. 
Where did that come from? It came from the media that paints the young black man in St. Louis as a threat. And it's almost as if they paint every person as a threat. And I was prejudiced. I'm not proud of it. I was prejudiced. It, it struck me that, wow, I didn't even know this kid. And I'm prejudging him. And it's not pretty. And we as Christians fall in the same trap. I like to think we're, we're less prejudiced than other people. But I think there are times where we're just as prejudiced. I think if we look at people and we, we treat people the way the mainstream Christianity treats people, or if God treated us like mainstream Christianity treats other people, we'd be in trouble. Yeah. Because we, we are prejudiced. We don't treat people like Jesus would treat them. Right. And I was convicted that this, this young man who's obviously confused was hurting. He lives in a hurting world. And my reaction to him wasn't helping. And I know it's not the way Jesus would have interacted with him. Because you see that in his interactions with a woman caught in adultery. You see that in his interactions with, with Mary. And I want to look at that. Come on back. If I can find my... In, in John 12, Jesus is anointed at Bethany by Mary. And the story is told by John, and it doesn't really explain it much. And I think because of our, our cultural lenses, we kind of have to dig back into it, really into their culture, to really understand how really scandalous this was for Mary to be doing what she did with Jesus. In John 12 and verse 1, Since six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's worth of wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor, but you will not always have me. And this was scandalous because, first of all, Martha's doing all the work. Mary's not helping. Mary's at the feet of Jesus, which wasn't suitable for women to do in that time. Mary is washing Jesus' feet with expensive perfume, using her hair, which should have been up at the time. She's breaking all these these social um, taboos, doing, doing everything wrong, and Jesus defends her. Because he saw a woman who was distraught that her Lord was going to be gone, that he was going to be killed. And she had compassion. And she actually set the example that Jesus followed later when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, which again was scandalous, because they should have been washing his feet. 
And that's Jesus' view on life, a view on, uh, on others. That's looking at situations from Jesus' perspective, through Jesus' eyes. And I'm not saying that as Christians we tolerate sin, that we accept sin. I'm saying that we can hate sin. We don't, we don't need to hate the sinner. Right. We don't need to accept sin, but we do need to accept the sinner. And our society is messed up. Our Christianity in a lot of ways is messed up because we rank sins. Yep. We consider one sin worse than another. We say that that's not true, but that's how we treat people. Yeah. You know, the mainstream Christianity wants to go after gay marriage with a vengeance, with hate. But what are they doing about divorce? Yeah. Jesus hates divorce. And so we rank these things. And it's really it, it, it's messed up because we're not looking at things through, through the eyes of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So I want to challenge you guys um, this week to really consider how you view yourselves. Are you viewing yourselves from God's perspective? And how are you viewing other people? Even the people in this room. Because if we're not looking at each other through Jesus' eyes, we're doing each other a disservice. And certainly, if we're not looking at the world, those out there that are hurting through Jesus' eyes, we can't help them. There is no way that I could help Ryan or anybody that supported him if I can't look at, at him and those su- that support him through Jesus' eyes. Yeah. It's the only way I could reach him. Yep. And really, I think I'd have a whole lot better understanding if I'd be more compassionate. It's convicting. Yeah. I just want to leave you guys with uh, with those thoughts and the, and just the the reassurance that you know, parenting teaches us a incredible amount of things. So very important things. Those who are not married and not, don't have kids yet, you have that to look forward to. Because I really believe that our relationship with God is is that of parent and child. And too often we don't put ourselves in that in that uh, arena. It's more of an employer-employee relationship, or a master-servant relationship, or um, yeah, you know, the person beating and the person getting beaten. So consider that this week as you as you deal with your your day-to-day life. How do I view myself? And am I viewing people in, through Jesus' eyes? Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah.